Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. A reminder that we are on Patreon. So if you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can just go on there and type in, I'm probably wrong about everything, and you can help make the show possible for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you for your support. Today's guest is Eric Palmer. He is the founder of and president of the Detroit Red Tails, Inc., uh, which honors the 332nd Air Fighter Pilots that served in the Second World War. They were also the first African-American military aviators. And what they're doing at, uh, at Red Tails, Inc. is that they're celebrating their veterans in a very real way, rather than museums where these things collect dust and, you know, you have to be quiet and solemn. It's, it's very active and it's continuing the legacy in a very vibrant and alive way. And uh, I think it's something that we can do more of for our veterans. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind, and you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. with us eric palmer eric thank you so much for uh coming on the show today oh you're welcome very very well so you were you were telling me before we uh started recording so much amazing information about the red tails which is is actually not the name of it's the nickname for the first african-american uh war pilots in the second world war yes and, and you're you're describing the story of them and how uh because of Jim Crow of, of segregation in the military and the sort of how hard it was to get into the air Corps, they actually, the, the sort of the Jim Crow created this, this elitist group of jet fighters. Yeah. Of, of, well, of fighter pilots. They, fighter they pilots, weren't in yeah. jets yet. They right. Jets they yet. actually, I, well, I mean, we'll get there, but they fought <laughs> against the first jet plane. Right. Right, yeah, they did. I was like, "Whoa, that's crazy!" So, anyways, <laughs> yeah, they knocked down some jets. Yes, they did. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about the history of the three hundred and thirty second. Okay. Uh, fighter group. Yeah. Okay. So the the a lot of people know them as the Tuskegee Airmen. Right. And Tuskegee Airmen applies to anyone who served in a segregated unit that supported the flying activities of the 332nd Fighter Group um, and also 477th Bomber Group. Uh, during that time of segregation in the Army Air Corps from some say 1939 until 1949, but the first class was 1941. So between 1939 and 1949, anyone that was part of or supported that segregated activity is considered a Tuskegee Airman. Um, the name Red Tail actually applies to the fighter pilots that served overseas that flew Red Tail P-47s and P-51s. So, you know, there's a, there's a distinction between the two, but uh, a red tail 
Red Tails were the nicknames that were given to the 332nd Fighter Group when they were in combat in World War II. Now, when I was reading up on the history, um, it, the first actual African-American fighter pilot was Eugene Ballard. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, Jacques, Jacques Bullard. Eugene Jacques Bullard. Right. He, 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 um, he was from Louisville. And in World War One, um, he went over and served, uh, actually, was it for the French? I want to say for the French in the infantry. And he got hurt. Um, actually, I think, he, yeah, he served for the French in the infantry. He got hurt. And typically, you know, they, they pull you out of service. Right. Well, he was kind of sidelined and he, he learned how to fly. And he went back in and served with the, the French Foreign Legion. Um, actually, I think he did serve with the, with the U.S. initially. Um, but a lot of U.S. soldiers in World War I, if they got hurt, they were pulled out of service. Um, he fortunately learned how to fly while he was over in France. And he got on with the, with the French Foreign Legion and uh, flew combat there and it's not recorded but they say he had two knockdowns he shot down down two planes so yeah. every time i think of jocks i think of snoopy and uh right the and the cartoons the yeah. <laughs> yeah. so so that's sort of like the first seen as the first african-american fighter pilot uh but but because he they, they wouldn't allow um black fighter pilots into the u.s army he had to serve for France. So what was sort of the history to, to start the, the 332nd Fighter Division? Well, uh, African-Americans had been flying, well, even before Bullard. Right. Uh, here in the States, they had been flying. No one paid it much of attention, but um, Bullard and also uh, Bessie Coleman went over to France in, in the 20s and got her pilot's license because a lot of the aviation schools, most of the aviation schools in the U.S. Um, would not teach blacks how to fly. So those two went over. Um, but during the 20s, there was a lot of African-American flying clubs that came about and pilots started to be born out of those, those clubs. Um, in the 30s, though, late 30s, mid 30s, late 30s, the War Department realized that they're go we're going to get pulled into World War II. Mm -hmm. So they created what they called a civilian pilot training program and employed it at numerous universities and colleges across the, across the country where they taught civilians how to fly for free so that they have a pool of pilots to pull from when we got into World War right. II. And with the 332nd or the 99th, which preceded it, um, what happened was the black press during the 30s and some other pressure from the flying clubs also during the late 30s, you know, they pushed to have some of these civilian pilot training programs at some historically black colleges and universities. And there were 11, 13 of them that, uh, the federal government or the, the War Department ended up employing 
uh, these programs and Tuskegee just happened to be one. Um, there was, I mean, like I say, there was a number of them. Um, still with the pressure from the, from the black press to allow African-Americans to join the Army Air Corps, um, the decision was finally made, well, let's, let's try it out. Let's, let's, you know, see if they fail because that's what we're banking on, that they're going to fail. Right. So they started, they started the 99th uh, Pursuit Squadron in, in 41. And they started at Chanute Field in Illinois with the technicians, the mechanics, those types of people, um, brought them in. And then once they were trained up, they shipped them to Tuskegee. Um, there's a number of stories of why Tuskegee was chosen, but um, one famous picture that's out there shows Eleanor Roosevelt in, in the backseat of a Piper Cub. And she's flying around Tuskegee with the chief instructor there at Tuskegee in their civilian pilot training program, mm -hmm. Charles Anderson. And uh, she was there for some other business, some of her uh, 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 charitable organizations that she was involved with. She was down there checking on monies and things like that. And she's seen Black people flying around and ended up over, over at the airfield because she was under this impression that Blacks didn't know how to fly. She was impressed. Right. And she asked if she can go up. Of course, her Secret Service was kind of hesitant, but she, she was her own man. I mean, she was her own woman. <laughs> she was her own woman. So she jumped in the back of the plane and, and Chief Anderson flew around. And when she got back to Washington, she, she told, uh, told her husband all about the positive experience and that, you know, blacks can fly. So yeah. um, I think with Anderson being there and then also um, um, Benjamin O. Davis Jr., right. who was the first commander of the, of the 99th and the 332nd and the 477, um, with Benjamin O. Davis Jr., um, he was there at Tuskegee as the head of, uh, of their ROTC detachment. He had recently graduated, I think, I want to say in 36, 38, he had recently graduated from, from, uh, West Point. Um, I think the second African-American to graduate from West Point and the army had nowhere to put him. Because it was so segregated. Because it was segregated. Yeah. Because it was segregated. He was also interested in flying. So, you know, those two things combined with Tuskegee being in the South and a lot of Jim Crow, a lot of racism, a lot of prejudice, a lot of pressure being down there. They they would think they they thought that if they put these pilots in this position, then they would crack and they would quit. Right. And and a lot of the pilots do have some interesting stories about crossing that base Dixie line and, yeah. and being there in the south and seeing that things were different. But um, you know, they 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 started the 99th Fighter Squadron first um and trained up enough pilots um to build a squadron. There were 27 planes and I can't remember how many actual pilots within within uh, the squadron, but mm -hmm. they had built up 
you know, got enough people trained and, and, and had enough people for fighter squadron, but still the segregated Army Air Corps, there's nowhere for this fighter squadron to, grow, to go. Right. The fighter groups were already formed. They're free fighter squadrons per fighter group, and all of them were segregated. So even after all of the training that the 99th went through, um, they had nowhere to go. So they just repeated training. And, you know, this, like and I, this is like, while the war is going on. This is while the war is going yeah. on. And, you know, as, as I was mentioning before we started is, is that it, it shows you how imbecilic racism is because yeah. not only are these guys getting trained and retrained and, you know, uh, the, the training just being compounded by training on top of training. Yeah. When they decided, when the War Department decided to start this, you know, Tuskegee experience and, and, and see if it was successful or not, um, the white pilots that apply for the Army Air Corps, all they needed was high school diploma. But these guys, the first numbers of classes of them, they were required to be college graduates. And I, I was even reading up that they, they had to have like the first psychological evaluations were done. Yeah, yeah. On, on Wikipedia, yeah. that's where I got my information from. But, yeah, yeah, but they it, did have some. It was so incredibly rigid, but it was the first time that they had something of this. And it was, again, reinforcing this, the, the racist undertones right. of it all. Right. Yeah. You know, trying to trying to find everything that they can in there to to yeah. affirm their false beliefs. Yes. Um, you know, like I say, in, in 1925, the War College conducted a study that recognized all of the successes of African-American um, uh, soldiers throughout, uh, you know, every war that the U.S. had been in up through World War One, And they recognized nothing but success, nothing yeah. but success. Even the units that they tried to restrict from doing anything, nothing but success. Right. Um, but when they summarized the report, whoever summarized it yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't recognize the success. He, he pointed out his opinion of, you know, yeah. blacks are, are inferior. We're mentally it was inferior. It was very subjective. Yeah. You know, we couldn't operate complex machinery. We're cowards. We're not leaders. Had this group think mentality. Mm -hmm. The whole nine yards, just to, just to to beat on a stereotype. And and like I say, I tell people uh, that was 1925. 1925 yeah. was the height of Jim Crow, and you know they wrote that report to to go right along with societal norms it yes. was unfortunate but but they did well and, and you even kind of compared it to like the the, the Mueller report right and it's like, yeah, God, yeah. like this is a 600 page document <laughs> there's got, a lot of evidence here oh no no, 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 no no we already got our minds set up it's like right. oh, okay all right right yeah, yeah. The, the, the the original pdf which is out there online for that uh college uh War uh, college study, uh, sixty three or sixty four pages long, and right. the summary is like the summary memo was like three or four pages. Yeah, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. 
anybody that has the whole document that has sense enough to read the whole document will realize the summary is is nothing but propaganda. Well, and, you know? and, and, and that's just it because, again, as I've kind of been reading up, but it's like, how did we get to here? And there's that famous case in, in like the late 19th century, Plessy versus Ferguson. Right. And that's where, you know, equal but separate came out. Yeah. And that was the birth of, of Jim Crow laws. I don't know how it, it gets the name Jim Crow. And then after World War II, early in the 50s, is when there's Brown versus a Board of Education. Yeah. Where so so the red tails are kind of in this in this limbo between that. They are. Yeah. They are. And so they, they, they continue practicing and they just become like ace pilots because that's what they're yeah. doing. They they yes. And they then, served admirably. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Served- so when was it in 1943? Because it was around 1943 that they saw their first combat. When was it that that you know the the, the leaders, these white guys, are like you know maybe we should uh, utilize yeah these let guys. them let yeah. them go over uh, let them there fly was, yeah. there was right there was there was there was enough pressure that they first sent the 99th fighter squadron over. At the same time, they did initiate the 332nd fighter group which was then the uh, 100th fighter squadron, the 301st and the 302nd fighter squadron. Like I say, fighter groups typically have three fighter squadrons. Um, So they they, uh, implemented the 332nd, brought that up and and then those three fighter groups and started training soldiers for that. In the meantime, there was enough pressure. They sent the 99th overseas and originally the 90, 99th, let me uh, let me pull this up, make sure I'm telling you the right thing. Originally the 99th was assigned to the, let's see, where's that at? Uh, the 33rd fighter group. They were originally right. assigned to the 33rd fighter group in May of 43. The commander of the 33rd fighter group was a staunch segregist. He was a bigot. He was a racist. He was all the terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one should use to describe right. him. He would not put them in any position to succeed. He would send them off on combat missions or on missions where he knew there was nothing to do. Yeah. And then he would send back these reports to the states saying these dudes are incompetent, they yeah. don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And then that's when Benjamin O. Davis went, came back, got called back to the States to defend their record. And both movies, Red Tails and the Tuskegee Airmen, the HBO movie from 95, kind of encompass his, his mindset and his attitude when, right. he was, when he was there in front of uh, the Senate committee. You know, and basically he told them that you know, they're, they're, you're putting us in positions where we can't win, you know? Yeah. So in the meantime, in the, in the back of their mind, they had already decided they were going to go ahead with the 332nd. So right. while he was back in the States, he picked up command of the 332nd. But what they decided to do after that hearing was transfer the 99th Fighter Squadron over to the 324th Fighter Group. Okay. That commander was more liberal. Right. He integrated the 99th in 
with his fighter fighter squadrons. They started going out on missions together. And that's when people started to see these guys succeed right. and, and do things. Charles Hall was the first one that, that shot, uh, shot down an enemy plane and his reward was a bottle of Coca-Cola. But, you know, they, they were with, yeah. the, with, the, with the 324 um, for a while. Let's see, from actually for a month, they were just with the 324th. And then for some reason, they reassigned them back again with the 33rd. Um, but at that time, the cat was out of the bag. They knew that these guys knew what they were doing. Right. Um, and they, they actually went back and forth between the 324th, the 33rd, the 79th. And then once the 332nd was, was up and running, and sent overseas in May of 44, they attached the 99th to the 332nd. Um, and I mean, it was an official attachment right. to them. So they were, technically they were the only fighter group in World War II with four fighter squadrons under them. <laughs> you know, when technically it was only supposed to be three, but um, a lot of the veterans from the 99th, they had, enough time that they came back to Tuskegee and were and were instructors, you know, for the later classes that that filled the 332nd. And some of the guys even tell the stories that, you know, they did not want to be assigned to the 332nd. They wanted to stay either just their own individual fighter squadron or, you know, keep us with these other uh, fighter groups, these other, uh, you know, white fighter groups that you know, we're, we're letting them see some combat. But, of course, <laughs> strict segregation had to play its role. And, and they said, no, we, <laughs> you guys are going under the 332nd. Well, I, I was even, again, in my reading, and, and, you know, I mean, obviously now we're, like, not as dense when it comes to these things, right? But they, but right. they would only train uh, airplane medics. They had to train black Air, airplane medics to take care of the pilots yeah 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 this book this book i got here yeah <laughs> i'm you you probably more likely can't see it but it was written by uh a guy leroy gilliatt who was a tuskegee airman okay and yeah. on the back cover on the back cover he lists all of the units that were associated with that aviation experiment right. you know so yeah. um when they talk about a segregated Army Air Corps, they literally meant a segregated Army Air Corps. So yeah. everything that you needed to run an Air Corps, it was it was segregated. We had our own nurses, uh, postal, finance, um, you name it. So all of those people, and that's what I was saying, all of those people that uh, were part of that experience mm -hmm. are considered Tuskegee Airmen. Right, right. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. There, there's a couple of girls that I've met over the last few years. Um, um, uh, Lieutenant Cologne, Nancy Lieutenant Cologne, she was a nurse. Um, a girl named Callie, she was a stenographer. But they're, they're what we call documented original Tuskegee Airmen. They were part of that experience. If your name is, is on the rolls as being you know, in one of those attached units, you are a document original Tuskegee Airmen. Now, like I was saying about red tails. Right. Now, now the 332nd 
when they came over because the the 99th fighter squadron when the 99th fighter squadron was sent over they were sent over with p40s warhawks um were those were those really good planes back then uh they were hand-me-downs yeah. <laughs> yeah they were they were sufficient for the for the time um but the 99th was the only one out of all four squadrons, 99th, 100th, 301st, 302nd, 99th was the only one that flew the P-40s. Um, right. And the P-40s, you know, you, you'll recognize the P-40s because in the Pacific, they always put the tiger mouth on the front yes, of it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the teeth, or the shark teeth on the yeah. front of it, rather, the shark teeth. Um, but when the 332nd was sent over, they were sent over with P-39s. Now the P thirty nine, the doors open like car doors. Yeah. The engine was behind the pilot. There was uh, the propeller shaft ran between the pilot's legs, out front. But yeah. then coming out of the nose of the plane was a fifty millimeter cannon. Right. <laughs> and and you know the P thirty nine, it was an interesting plane. It, they call it a tank buster because okay. most most of the application for a lot of the other fighter groups who flew P-39, they were they were taking out tanks. But uh, the 332nd came over with those. And then when they finally merged the 99th with the 332nd, then they gave them, all four of them, hand-me-down P-47s. Mm. Now, at that particular time, once the 99th was merged with the 332nd, the 332nd was falling under the 15th Air Force. And, and, that, and that was, that was you know, when white, When the red tails came in. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, well, the 15th Air Force was, was uh, they had all of the... Desegregated. Fighter, well, they had all the fighter groups that were fighting in Europe, in right. Southern Europe, coming up right. from Southern Europe. England was coming from the West... Yeah. And the U.S. was coming from the south up yeah. into Europe. Through so Italy. 15, and, yeah. 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 So the 15th Air Force, uh, they had some definition of all of their fighter groups um, of what color scheme the tails of the planes would oh, be. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, just the color, just the whole color scheme of the plane. They devised this color scheme because the 332nd and the 15th Air Force, more specifically, their duty was going to turn into being mostly bomber escorts. Right. Escorting bombers to, to take out targets. We realized that was our power was instead of, you know, dogfighting, let's take out strategic targets. Mm. So that was that was the big mission of the of the war was taking out targets. So for the fighter groups to be easily identified while they're in the air because right. a bomber group may have 27 bombers that you're escorting, but it takes more than just 27 uh, fighter planes to escort these bombers. Mm -hmm. It took <laughs> hundreds. <Yeah. laughs> so, you know, uh, numerous fighter groups would escort these bombers. If it was a large armada, um, uh, armada 
there was a number of fighter groups that were escorting these bombers. And for the bomber pilots to easily know who's escorting them and be able to identify them, they can look at that tail color. Right. And for the 332nd, it just so happens that the, the color of their tail was red. And that didn't come into effect until they got the P-47s. So a lot of people don't realize, they, when they think about red tails, they yeah. think about the Tuskegee Airmen, they think about these nice, beautiful P-51s. Well, they had these hand-me-down P-47s first for about a month, month and a half. And those were the first ones that had the tail of it painted red. And then when they moved into the brand new uh, shiny P-51s, they just carried that over. But, you know, it, it made it easy for the bomber right. groups to identify. The 52nd fighter group, their tails were yellow. Yeah. And I would have hated to been in the 52nd and was running away from, <laughs> <laughs> running away from the action. Oh. <laughs> and the bomber pilots, you know, literally call them yellow tails. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the other one that was that was unreal is that I was reading up is in 1943 in April, they was was it in April? They anyways they attacked this island, this garrison defense, and it was the first time uh, that jet fighters had caused infantry to surrender because they just got their asses kicked. I for, yeah. I, I, I I forget what year it was, but it was they were sort of given this mission mission and it was like, you know, good luck. Like they had no real sense of what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And then they went to this Island and they just like, it, it was, it, it was it an Island off, off of Italy. I think right? it might've, I think it might've been Pantelarella. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 In, nor yeah in Northern yeah. Africa. Yeah. Right? yeah. Because the, the three thirty second they started off in Tunisia right. and they moved to, to Pantelarella. And yeah, they had to evacuate the island. <laughs> they had to evacuate the island before they could yeah. they could occupy it. So yeah, they they did terror. <laughs> they yeah. did terrorize it. Like that's crazy. Like, like imagine it. that you, you you know the strafing is so bad that you're like, okay, right. forget it, man. Like this right, is not right. worth it. Of course. <laughs> yeah, and then and then that's when they moved up to to Italy, and then they were they were, they were supporting there, and and I was also reading up that you're talking about they're protecting these bombers and right. they had one of the longest bombing escorts in all of right. World War II. Right. And right. that's when they were going into Germany to blow up that factory, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. The Mercedes Benz factory. To yeah. take out. <laughs> right. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yep. To take out the Mercedes Benz factory. Um, yeah. Cause they were, uh, you know, they, they started off in, in, in uh, uh, Tunisia and then, you know, sl slowly started moving north, uh, finally ending up in Ramatelli in Italy, right. where they flew, you know, a lot of their, their missions out of Ramatelli because they were nice and close to the action. And yeah, that's when the, and, and that's when the P-51s came in because, mm -hmm. Um, the War Department realized, you know, some of these missions are about to become long range missions right. and we need planes that have long range capability. Right. And the P-51 was that plane. I mean, it had it had long range capability. It was fast. Um, they could attach some some external drop tanks 
that would get them, you know, to the to the distance that they needed to go. And they needed to go all the way to Germany and back. Yeah. You know, so that was that was the the birth of the P-51. And then, you know, people realized how nice and sleek the plane was and, you know, and, and, and nice to fly. They call it the Cadillac of the sky. Cadillac of the sky. <laughs> my, my dad, he, he loved uh, he was a pilot. And uh, yeah, he you know, he loved this kind of stuff. Now, the other one is the Mustang, right? Yeah, that's the P-51. Yeah. That's the P-51 I, 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 you know, I, I, I wish my dad could have talked because he would actually know a lot more than me. Whereas I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm learning a lot right now. But um, the Mustang is also the symbol of, of the, the red tails of Detroit, right? Well, yeah, now that's that's <laughs> interesting story. Um, so now my organization, Detroit Red Tailing, yeah. I've custom wrapped a Ford Mustang to look like a P-51 Mustang. Yeah. Now, there was a article actually on the Ford website, the Ford media website, where a guy by the name of uh, got, uh, Frank, Frank Najjar talked about his influence with naming the car Mustang after the P-51. Right. You know, this was during the 60s. There were still veterans. I mean, early 60s, there were still veterans who had fought in Korea and who were, you know, familiar with World War II. And actually, I think they were still flying at P-51, maybe even close to into the 60s. Um, but he, he has this story on the Ford Media website talking about uh, his influence with uh, inspiring Ford Motor Company to name the right. car Mustang. Now, I got an opportunity with, uh, since, you know, I've got this, this Ford Mustang, I've joined um, the Mustang Owners Club of Southeast Michigan. So mm -hmm. I hang out with those guys. I go to car shows. And one of the reasons why I got the car and wrapped it is it's another venue. Yeah. to talk about the Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah. And these car shows are set up, people come by, they look at the car, but then they want to know history. And it's it's a perfect opportunity. You know, a lot of guys uh, that are retired to get a chance to go to schools and things like that and talk to kids or, you know, at the air shows. And I take it to air shows too, but, you know, you don't necessarily, in my situation, you don't have to be at an air show right. to learn about the Tuskegee Airmen. Come on over here to this car show and I'll teach you what, I got an opportunity to go down to um, a guy by the name of uh, Gail Halderman. He is the designer that pinned, that drew the original Mustang that would end up being the production Mustang. And I talked to him and on the website, I got a link to a video where I actually asked him about that story with Frank Najjar and he started laughing. <laughs> because obviously he knew him. I mean, they all worked together. Yeah. He started. He started laughing. He said, "Yeah, he, he would tell that story all the time." But that's not the. That's not the case. Actually, with the Ford Mustang, the production version, um, there was a open contest to name the vehicle. Okay. Mustang just happened to be one of them. 
Cougar was one. There was a number of different names that were thrown in the hat. It just so happens that Mustang happened to be the winner. But that naming of the car after the airplane is semi-true because what Gail Halderman uh, explains is that there was a prototype Ford Mustang that was made in 63. And it was a it was a sleek two seat uh, open air car like with a style jet. bar, yeah, that looked like a fighter jet, and then it had a blue uh, rally stripe down the middle of it. And they did name that Mustang after the plane because they were trying to inspire um, pilots yeah. to be interested in this in better, this particular car. To buy a car. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's great so marketing. You know, there's there's some truth, but you know, it was the it was a pre-production car. It was a concept car that was named after the airplane, and not necessarily the production vehicle. But um, one of the reasons I think this stuff came up appeared on Ford's media website over, you know, the last number of years. Let me see if I uh, this was 2013 that he posted it out there. Um, that Frank Najar told this story. I think one of the reasons why Ford kind of promoted that is because um, Roush, um, uh, Jack Roush, Jack Roush. And, you know, Jack Roush is heavy into motorsports. Right. And Jack, and Jack Roush is heavy into military aviation history. Jack Roush owned a couple of P-51s from the, I think they were rebuilt. I don't think they were, they might've been originally from World War II, but Jack Roush used to own a couple of actual P-51s. He actually flew and he started integrating the two of them, the car and the airplane. And he started to make these Jack Roush P-51 Ford Mustangs. And I, I want to say that was like 2009 he started doing that. So Ford, I must have seen how much yeah. how much success he was getting at, you know, connecting these two, and decided to tell their own story of of how they they were actually connected. But the production from 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 what Gail Halderman tells me, and I believe him. I talked to him. He was there from the very beginning. You know, it wasn't necessarily the production car. It was the, it was the 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 concept, the prototype that was named after the plane. Which is still there's the connection. Yeah, because I mean, when I was reading up on it, my little, you know, my I I should have been working today, but instead I was reading, and uh, and and I saw that the one plane was a Mustang, and and then I I saw on your page that you had the Mustang, and I'm like, oh, I. I see the connection. Now, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so you know that's and, and then that's another talking point when I go out right. to these car right. shows and I get to talking to people and you know if they want to talk more about the car, you know they say, well, what's the car named after the plane? Yeah, yeah. I could they say no. They had let's see the Cougar, the Torino, Allegro, Adventurer. And they even thought about the Thunderbird too, naming the the production vehicle the Thunderbird too. But like I say, there was there was competition, and and eventually, you know, management decided, well, let's call this production vehicle a Mustang. Now I remember, I think, if I'm not mistaken, another thing that uh, Gail Halderman was telling telling us was the fact that there was a there was a uh, 
not a metal model maker, uh, a clay, a clay modeler there mm -hmm. at Ford yeah. at that time that was Polish or somewhere from Europe and say as a hobby he was carving a galloping Mustang right. and that was sitting there in the shop and it's it's identical to the to the Mustang logo that's on yeah. the car so that you know kind of told everybody well <laughs> you know it's a Mustang, but yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I remember in 2002 when, like, I was 12, and I'm dating myself here, but they had the Thunderbirds come out, that, that kind of concept car. Do you, do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. Dude, those yeah, were yeah, ugly yeah, as yeah. all hell, man. Yeah. <laughs> My dad, I remember he was like, should we get this? And I'm like, no, dad, that two, man, that's that, not cool. Did you talk about the two-seater uh, Thunderbird? It was, yeah, it was, they re-released it in like, I don't know, 2002. Yeah. Yeah. And it was yeah. like, it was just, it was a yacht. It was so big. <laughs> right? Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, it, and it had, it had the little port window in the, in the back, a little circular window. Right. It was, it was right. trying to be a throwback to the Thunderbird, but it was too much of a weird they, amalgamation of like yeah. a throwback and what they thought 2002 was going to be. And, and, and I think they wanted too much money for it, too. Way too much money. Because, it, it, I mean, it just wasn't, you know, <laughs> priced yeah. in the range of regular cars. And it wasn't, yeah. there was nothing about it that was extravagantly uh, different than other cars, except for the price. <laughs> it, it, it was trying to be like some weird luxury car. Because right. it wasn't a sports car, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't no. like a... Like a Mustang is like, you know, it, it, it is comparable to like a fighter pilot. Whereas this one right. was like, you know, let's smoke right. cigars and you know, drive around. <laughs> or whatever. Now, going back to the, 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 the history and the legacy of, of the, the 332nd, the Red Tails. I mean, when I'm reading up about this and I, sort of one thing that I got from it was, again, this, the idea of... Um, cultural or racial supremacy was being completely challenged oh yeah right? you know like after this oh, yeah. it's like the, the 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 sort of the racist segregationalists are like oh shit right like yeah. what are we what are we gonna do yeah and and as a result there was a lot of because i think it was the naacp that originally was like hey we got to put these fighters in there and then afterwards it was like okay you know we fought for this country now what and it was like they fought against the Nazis, uh, and obviously proved very valiantly. And now mm -hmm. they still have to face Jim Crow when they returned home. Ooh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what that's what that's what's called considered the double V. Yeah. And not just the not just the yeah. the three thirty second, but all of the African American troops of of uh, World War Two that served in Europe. Yeah. You know, they they knew they were going there to. To, to take out Hitler and fascism um, and thought that once they came back home, that would help them erase racism. And unfortunately it didn't happen. Um, there's a number of stories of veterans being lynched in uniform. Um, you know, veterans being, you know, told to take off the uniform. They didn't represent the country. Um, so the treatment was still there. On my car, I honor two people that are that are still living, that are the as I mentioned, Red Tail um, is is a nickname for the 
fighter pilots over in Europe. And there were 991, 93, somewhere around 1,000 pilots that were trained, but only 355 actually went over to Europe and served in combat right. fighter pilots, single-engine pilots, they say. Um, out of those 355, there's only eight that are still living. And two of the guys are my two buddies here in, in Michigan that I honor on a car. Harry Stewart on the on the driver's side, Alexander Jefferson on the passenger side. Alex is 99, he'll be 100 in November of this year. But Alex uh, would tell the story that um, he was a POW. He served the last eight months in, in, in a POW camp or a couple of them um, when the camp was liberated by uh, Patton's Third Army. Um, you know, they, they were shipped and, and, and once they came home, all the POWs came home on, on one vessel and they landed in New York. And he tells a story that as he was, as he was coming down the gangplank, he said there was a little white soldier at the bottom of the gangplank saying whites to the left and niggas to the right. <laughs> he, said, he, said, he said, oh shit, I'm back home. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! Yeah. This escapes a POW camp. To right, shit. he said that he said they treated him more like an officer and a gentleman in that POW camp. What man? Then, then when he got home, yeah, you know, and it's it's uh, you know, it's it's interesting what. Uh, I don't, you know, and the thing is, is that uh, people that served with him um, that were in that POW mm -hmm. camp, because I think he said there were like some 13,000 officers, 12,000 officers, something like that. And maybe 67 were black, were Tuskegee Airmen, right. because that camp they were in, Stalag Luft 7A, um, was for was for the, the pilots. Um, and, you know, he says during that time that he was there, you know, yeah, he could tell some of the ones that were just hardcore bigots. Yeah. But for the most part, everybody got along. He said when he first got there, um, <laughs> this big country boy from from Kentucky looked him up and down and said, yeah, we want this one right here. And Alex is, I don't know. I, I, he tells this story when he went down to join up. He didn't make the weight limit. That's how small he is. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so he's a little fella. And he said, when that guy said, we want this one, he didn't know what to expect. But come to right. find out um, where, where he roomed, there were four or eight. I want to say it was eight of them. But where he roomed, um, he was the only black one there. Everybody treated him like an officer and a gentleman. It ended up that this was the room where all of the intelligence was, where the escape plan was. <laughs> and they and they knew that if they brought him in, that 99.9% mm. .9 of the time he wasn't a German spy. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. So he said that's the first time in life where that benefited him. But you know, they they became friends and 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 had no issues. But yeah, when they came back, they they face reality and that was the whole thing about the double victory yeah. trying to trying to gain victory over fascism but also coming home and trying to gain victory over racism and unfortunately it, 
it didn't happen until, you know, in the 60s. Yeah. But and, and, thinking and, and... It, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and thinking about their their battles. I don't know if you if you seen anything about the uh, um, Freeman Field incident or Godman Field incident or even Selfridge Field here in Michigan. But, you know, as these guys being officers, there's automatic deduction from their pay for the officers club. Mm. So they're expecting mm. that they could go into the officers club. Yeah, and there's, yeah. And segregation cut that out, cut it out big time. So, you know, when it comes to civil rights movements and silent protests, a lot of people don't realize that they kind of started it because during that time, right. um, as, uh, you know, as they were going through uh, Selfridge out here in Michigan to the, the 332nd transition through Selfridge to learn how to fly the P-39. And they were the first ones to try to get into the officers clubs there at Selfridge and were denied. Um, the base commander called them into the base theater and told them flat out, as long as he's a commander there, there will be no socialization between white and black officers. So that was it. Now, the 332nd, they were just transitioning through. They ended up going to Walterboro and then were shipped overseas from Walterboro out of South Carolina. And people in South Carolina didn't even know they were there, but that's a different story. But um, the 477th Bombardment Group is another uh, organization that's part of the Tuskegee Airmen. Right. The War Department was actually training up a bombardment group to go fight in the Pacific. And the 477th Bombardment Group, they were actually stationed at Selfridge uh, Field here in Michigan because Selfridge was, was uh, an ideal spot here in Michigan for bomber training because of the terrain was very similar to Europe, the whole nine yards. And the guys in the 477th, um, you know, they got the same speech. <laughs> there, would be right. no, there would be no socialization. Yeah. But they insisted and insisted and insisted. And um, unfortunately for the 477th, their commander, because the commander of the 332nd at the time was Benjamin O. Davis, mm -hmm. but the commander of the 477th, um, got his names on the tip of my tongue, Bob Selway, Robert Selway, who was a strict segregationist. And his mindset was the same as the base commander. You know, there'd be right. no socialization. So um, the 477th, you know, they started to be shipped out of Selfridge, northern parts of Michigan, here, there. They ended up in Godman Field in, in Indiana, then Freeman Field, well, Godman Field in Kentucky, and then Freeman Field in Indiana. And at all three locations, what they would do is try to get into the officers club by dressing up in their class A's, their finest, mm. two, three, four guys at a time would go to the door, try to get in, be denied by the MPs, another set. And they would do that all night long. Just keep pissing them <laughs> off. <laughs> just, just pissing them off. So yeah. that was like the beginnings of that, yeah. that silent protest. And then what happened in, in both scenarios is that the base commanders wanted these guys to sign a memorandum that stated, that defined 
them as being trainees and all the white officers on base as being instructors. Mm. And they would segregate the, the, the uh, officers club that way. The base commanders had gotten direction right. from, from their superiors that they can't segregate the officers club. So they figured, let's try it this way. And they sent out this memorandum for 101 officers, black officers to sign to, to agreeing to being considered trainees and nobody signed it. Not a one of them signed it. So since there was that- And they all saw it, obviously. And they all saw it. Yeah. And, 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 and since there was that defiance, they actually put those guys under arrest in quarters. Okay. They were, yeah. they were locked in their quarters, couldn't leave their quarters while they were standing there looking out the window. And we brought German POWs back to the States yeah. during World War II. And they would stand there in the window <laughs> watching the German POWs just enjoy the freedoms of, of life. You know, just yeah. walking around just as free as they, they wanted to be. And, you know, that was part of that double victory that they were fighting. But unfortunately, um, like I say, it, 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 it really didn't happen uh, during war. It was just, you know, just it continues to push yeah. afterwards. I mean, the sheer irony of we're fighting Nazi Germany, yet we have this racial caste system or whatever, <laughs> right. is, you know, here in, in our homeland. Right, is, right. It's just, it's wild when you look at it. And then in 1948, I mean, really from, from you know, a Canadian reading this, you start to see the, like you say, the beginning of the civil rights movement, because in 1948, yeah. they ended segregation in the military. Yes. There was a, I have it written down. Yeah. I don't know it off the top yeah. of my head, yeah. but yeah. executive yeah. order. Yeah, exact, exact. Yeah. yeah. Executive order 900, you know, 9,981. And yeah. then yeah. you start yeah. to see, right. This is the beginning of, you know, this doesn't yeah. make the, sense. This, right. The desegregation of the military. Yeah. Um, and an interesting story about Truman and that beginnings of blacks being allowed to fly in the military. Um, there's a fellow, Chauncey Spencer, Chauncey Spencer and Dale White. They mm. were a couple of civilian aviators out of the Chicago Flying Club. And they were sponsored by the black press across the country, Pittsburgh Courier, Chicago Defender, excuse me, a number of them sponsored these guys, but they flew this broken down biplane from Chicago to Washington, D.C. And they went there to lobby Congress to try to get anybody's attention to, you know, be on their side, to, to push to allow for African-Americans to join the Army Air Corps. Um, I think Chauncey Spencer applied, but what was denied, I don't think Dale White ever applied, but um, they flew there to DC, they ended up over in Congress, and they ran into then Senator Harry Truman, and they told Truman their story and, and why they came there, and Truman asked him, was, uh, said, you guys are US citizens, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You pay your taxes, don't you? That's that's the most important thing. You pay your taxes. Right. Of course. First question. 
yeah yeah you pay your taxes right <laughs> of course yeah and so so he said well you know i don't see why you guys cannot join but yeah. you know he didn't know the nuances of, of what was going on with the war department but he just he decided that he wanted to come out and take a look at their airplane mm -hmm. and he went out there and looked at the plane and i mean it was in bad shape it was it had no lights so if they flew at night, they would have to follow the lights of another plane, <laughs> hoping yeah. hope that they were yeah. going the right way. But um, he told them that if you guys are, are brave enough to fly this piece of junk to DC, then when I get the chance, I'm, I'll be brave enough to to push for you guys. I mean, as a senator, he pushed. Right. But right. that was something that he remembered when he signed that executive order of wow. desegregating the the uh, the military he kept his word yeah. yeah he was he was true to his word so yeah at that point in time is when when things started to uh desegregate and the army air corps was the first ones to desegregate or the air force at that time the air force came about yeah. in 1949 but um anyone that was part of that of the Army Air Corps during those times of segregations from 1941, technically until July of 49 was when they desegregated the, the final, the last segregated unit was July of 49. So up until that time, anybody that was served in any of those units are considered documented original Tuskegee Airmen. Right. Um, I got a, my mother's, father's brother great uncle um he joined the air force in october 48 and i've got some folks researching to try to figure out if he would have been considered a tuskegee airman but they can't find him on any of the of the roles that they've got so far of those that they consider doc, documented tuskegee airmen but yeah july of 49 is when it was finally desegregated and then I want to say, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Marine Corps was the last one to desegregate it in like the 60s. Wow. Yeah. That still is like, and, and then I, I, I wonder if you had this elite group of, of air fighters, African-American air fighters, if they even, if they, if they just wanted to stay together, you know what I mean? Like, um, you know what? No one's ever really talked about that um i think they were tired of the segregation by yeah, by the time they started to desegregate yeah. them um they were i'm not going to say they were happy or content that they were segregated but they knew they were segregated and they they made the most of it one of their final acts um harry stewart as a matter of fact that i honor on the driver's side he was a group of, of three primary pilots that represented the 332nd. At that time, it was the 332nd composite group because what happened after the war ended, um, they um, brought the 332nd home and uh, the 477th bombardment group had never went overseas to serve. Um, so they never seen any, any battlefield time, but when they brought the 332nd home after the war, they combined, I want to say two of the 
bombardment groups with two of the fighter groups, and they came up with this 332nd composite group. Right. I don't know if it was the the one and only composite group. I don't know if it was or not at that time. I haven't looked to see if there were other composite groups, but with two fighter groups and two bomber groups. And at that time, they were in existence in May of 1949. So it was still segregated. And uh, Harry Stewart, along with Alva Temple and um, James Harvey, were the three primary pilots who won an internal competition to represent the 332nd Composite Group at a 1949 air gunnery meet in Las Vegas. Now, the commander or the, the head of the uh, Air Force wanted to bring back this air gunnery competition that had existed before the war, but you know, bring it together in some official capacity. And he invited teams from seven composite group, or not composite, but uh, conventional groups, which are just your prop right. planes and five jet groups. There were five jet groups at that time that were flying jets. Um, invited, you know, these, these 12 teams out to Las Vegas for this competition, this air gunnery competition. And the conventional class, um, they had, I think, seven events, seven or eight events, and the jet class had like two less like six events, five or six events that they had to compete in to score. And when all the dust was settled, not only was the 332nd the highest score in the conventional class, but they were the highest score out of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> out, of, out of everybody. So um, now James Harvey is still living, he's in Denver and then uh, Harry Stewart uh, when those two guys go out to different places or a number of years ago, maybe some 10 years ago, they were out somewhere and speaking and someone in the audience just hollered out, hey, you guys are the first Top Guns. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, the original Maverick so, and Goose. <laughs> right. So since, that, so since that point, that's when they've been marketing the original themselves top as, guns. A, as, 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 a, as the first Top Guns. As the first Top Guns, so... Yeah, you know, that right there was a was a staple. That final moment was a staple in all of that, you know, nonsense, you know, especially from that 1925 uh, uh, War College report saying that they can't, uh, you know, operate complex machinery. And right. then these guys win, you know, the very first air gunning competition. And not only did they win it, but they won it in obsolete... Airplanes. Yeah. Sorry, give me one. Give me one sec. I just got to pause. Okay. Um, there's some things on the on the last page. Uh, it's contacts and sponsors, and there's a list of Tuskegee Airmen references. And the very top link is Detroit Red Tail storyboards, and it'll take you to my Google Drive that have various storyboards. These storyboards I put together. They're two by four. And I fold them up basically and put them in the car and set them around the car when I go, you know, yes, yeah. to display. But it's like a, basically a mobile museum. Yeah. But you know, you could you could take a look at those and and see some other items that are documented. 
So, so last question before we talk again, because, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your knowledge and, and, and all that I've learned. So what, what got you into this? Um, because this is, this is, this is like a living history. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, let's go to a museum and look at the dust on everything. This is like active history in a sense of it's living. So what got you into this project? I have always been interested in aviation. When I was in middle school, I wanted to be a commercial airline pilot, but uh, at the time I was too tall for the specs at that time. So I thought I lost the dream then. When I went to high school, we had curriculums and my curriculum was aerospace technology, you know, still thinking that I could get into aviation one way or another. Um, Nothing happened during high school, but then uh, when I went to college, I was in Army ROTC and the time came. As a matter of fact, out at Fort Lewis there in Seattle, um, I was there for an advanced camp and uh, there's one day for the ROTC cadets, all of the different job MOSs or categories within the army, they would set up on this parade field like a recruitment. And I started walking over to the aviation tent and army aviation at the time was just helicopters. But I said, well, this is my chance. I'm going to get in aviation. And as I was walking over there, this little butter bar lieutenant pointed at my glasses and said, no, you got to be 20. So killed my dream then. But Fast forward to the 90s, uh, late 90s, my son was doing a, 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 a history report for school. And um, this was after the Tuskegee Airmen movie in 95. So, you know, I encouraged him to do it on Tuskegee Airmen. And at that time, I started to learn more about him. Going into 99, um, still been in the Army Reserves, one of my peers at the time, this other captain, she needed to do a report and she decided to do it on Tuskegee Airmen. And we found out there was a Tuskegee Airmen Museum in Detroit. So we went and visited, learned some more. And in 2000, had a family reunion. And I was talking to one of my uncles about the Tuskegee Airmen. And he started laughing. He said, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of the Detroit chapter of Tuskegee Airmen. You should, <laughs> you should come join. So considering that it was going to be $270 to join, which I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about two, maybe three years later, he didn't expect it, but I remembered exactly where the meeting was and what day and what time. And I showed up one day and joined. And, uh, you know, that first night when I joined, they made me the editor and publisher of their newsletter called The Hoss Cry, which, the, well, The Hoss Cry 2. And The Hoss Cry was the original name, or was the name of the original newsletter that they published at Tuskegee. Right, the Tuskegee Army Airfield. So I felt it an honor, and I've been doing the newsletter since then, and you know, just inspired me to do more. And then starting Detroit Redtail uh, in 2016, we were we had a dilemma. Uh, you know, we were presented with all these opportunities to participate in parades, but we didn't have mm. a nice vehicle to ride in. So I figured, you know, next year I want to get me a convertible. So. Let me get a convertible and wrap it and make it, you know, something that'll stand out in the in the parades and did that. Started participating in parades and somebody told me I should go to a car show. Went to a car show, got a bunch of awards and this is 2017. And since then, I don't know how many events I've done, but, you know, it's just been my way 
right. of continuing the legacy. Yeah. I mean, like like you know, I'm still working, <laughs> working harder than I should be. But a lot of the guys in the chapter are are guys that are retired. They've got opportunities to go out to schools, talk to yeah. kids, things like that. I say, well, I'll see those same kids that you're talking to at the car show this weekend. That's awesome. <laughs> What a great people to pull people in, man. Yeah. 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 Well, Eric, thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Like I said, we're going to have to have you on again, my friend. So thank you so much. All right. Sounds good. Have a good one. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Once again, that was Eric Palmer, the founder and president of the Detroit Red Tails, Inc., it was, uh, it was wonderful having him on the show. And he does all of this. This is all volunteer hours. I mean, you know, the fact that he made an hour out of his day, his very busy day, to speak to us truly is a privilege. And I thank him for that. One part that, that really stuck out to me was how these, these young men, these soldiers, these elite pilots were fighting for their country. And I think one of them was shot down. I think that was Alexander Jefferson. And he was put in a POW camp and he eventually returned home safely. Uh, However, when he returned home, he instantaneously received abject racism and how that was a reminder of, oh yeah, I'm back home again. And just how shocking that is. And it's very easy for someone like myself to forget that, to see that there were people of different colors and cultures not just in America, but in Canada, who fought for the freedom of their country only to come home and still receive uh, bigotry and prejudice. So it's just a reminder that, yes, we've come very far, but we cannot forget where we've come from. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you and I appreciate your time. Have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant. And I'm probably wrong about everything.